Hey, welcome back to the Backyard Professor videos on Mormonism. I'm on the road a little bit and eating some fried chicken. I'm not going to lie to you. I love chicken. Especially when it's fried and it's got the right spices and sauces and stuff. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to share some more information with you guys on my, boy, straighten up that camera, huh? On my experiences with uh, apologetics and my journey out of apologetics because I just can't help but feel that there's a lot of people who have had these kind of experiences and harrowing psychological fears and terror worry, concern, what am I going to do, how am I going to do this this way, you know, what's everyone going to think, etc. And I want to share with you how I handled some of that and what I did to, what do you say, counteract it or, or deal with it, realizing that there is life afterward, for real, and it's good life. The psychology of Mormonism damages more than helps. And there's very little question about that. It's, uh, it's pretty brutal. And so we have to learn how to, to deal with that, to, to work with it. And we can, but the basis of the theology, for me anyway, with the idea of an apostasy, of uh, no other church having the truth except Mormons, that's a tough one to overcome. And technically I didn't at first. I basically went into atheism. Because if there really was an apostasy and no other church is true, then no other church is true. There's no point in going to any other uh, Christian religion, right? I mean, that's, that's the, the essence of it. So with that being said, how do we... What if, what if you really do feel like you need to be religious? Yeah, you can. That was why I slipped into atheism. And like, like a good apologist, I wanted to know everything I could about atheism. So I bought dozens of their books and read them all, all that. But ultimately, that was unsatisfying to me also. Hold on, I gotta put on my seatbelt. Okay, I got my seatbelt on. Anyway, what was I lying about? I went through a psychological phase that was not easy. And but I made it through. But what was it that gave me my contrast? As an apologist, when I was still with Fair, I was working hard to 
uh, learn as much as I could, right? Now, of course, our objective is to take Joseph Smith's understanding and use it to interpret everything in life, right? Because he claimed to have a restoration. So that's what we do. We use Joseph Smith's stuff. In order to be a good apologist, I felt like I had to know the Bible better because you don't learn much about the Bible in Sunday school. This was rudely shown to me when I began debating a 15-year-old Christian who already knew the Greek and the Hebrew in the New Testament and the Old Testament. And I was pleasantly shocked at how knowledgeable he was. Now, I was in my 40s. I had a broader reading, so to speak, than he did. But he had a better grasp of the biblical ideas. He had a better way to interpret the context and the background basis. I mean, this kid was really surprising. I thought he was like in his 20s as a uh, doctoral student. He said, no, no, I'm a teenager. I'm still in high school. That showed me I didn't know enough. So that was what got me looking into the biblical scholarship, the P. Kyle McCarter Jr., Frank Moore Cross, Mark D. Smith, Joseph Fitzmaier, the great Catholic scholar, Raymond Brown. Uh, and as I began looking at their biblical materials, I realized how little that the Mormon scholars used the biblical languages, the Aramaic and the Hebrew, the Coptic, the Greek, the Persian, the Babylonian, the Cuneiform. I was really surprised. And I began asking, you know, how come we're not at the forefront of, of critical biblical scholarship like this? Why aren't we analyzing the Greek and the Hebrew and all that? And they basically said, well, sure, maybe that's something you should do. So I began doing that. It was that looking into the biblical scholarship that showed me the contrast. I come to recognize through time, especially when I read Fitzmaier. See, when I studied the Dead Sea Scrolls, I was using Hugh Nibley's lens his interpretations and ideas because of course he was finding all the parallels to the Book of Mormon and so as an apologist that was wonderful. When I began studying Immanuel Taub for instance and some of his textual criticism of the Greek and of the, uh, the Hebrew Old Testament and the Dead Sea Scrolls I began to see things a lot differently than I used to when I actually sat down and read the Dead Sea Scrolls, and I read Vanderkam and some of the great Dead Sea Scrolls scholars, they didn't, I didn't see the parallels as strongly as Nibley was making it out to be at all. And I was on fire with the Dead Sea Scrolls for a few years because of Nibley's outlook. When I actually began reading them for myself and reading the Dead Sea Scrolls scholars, I saw a difference. And then four BYU professors were called onto the International Dead Sea Scrolls team once the cartel was broken. And that, of course, made everyone lose interest in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is 
truly a sad state of affairs, they still have a lot of interesting material to offer us. When I began reading them, it showed me with a very powerful contrast that Mormons were Mormonizing everything. Now, I probably threw too much hot water around. Uh, I said my complaint was we're too shallow. And it really exasperated some of the group on there because we had a couple of the BYU professors in the email list that I was part of. And they said, uh, we're not shallow, we're exploring the full range of meaning of the Bible that the Christians aren't viewing. Well, what they were doing was taking Joseph Smith's interpretation of, say, the Melchizedek priesthood, or Joseph Smith's interpretation of Enoch, or Moses, or Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham, etc., you know, the Pearl of Great Price, the Joseph Smith translation and all that, the, do the Doctrine and Covenants too. They were simply taking his material and reading it back into the bi biblical texts. None of that is in the biblical scholars, but their analysis of the Greek and the Hebrew was very convincing. And it dawned on me, I'm out of my league. So that began my learning, still am, the biblical languages as well. And that changed everything. That just changed everything, man. I got the several lexicons, dictionaries, grammars, and uh, studying the, the materials that way, really showed me the dynamic contrast between Mormonizing the Bible or letting it speak for itself. And that was basically on my way out. It really hit me with the Book of Abraham because, of course, the Egyptian aspects of it and the historicizing of a mythological figure, Abraham, which was Joseph Smith's point of view, a real history. This really happened. Abraham really did say this. He really did have these experiences, so on and so forth. That began my way out of being an apologist. And when I finally did make the break, I read, uh, oh, what's his nose? Golly, I've got a brain fart going on here, sorry. Rittner, Robert Rittner, when I read his materials, that was the end of it. He manhandled absolutely every LDS Egyptologist and completely annihilated them all. So I knew the game was up. Well, I had nowhere to go, so to speak. You know, they say in conference, they love to do this intimidation factor. Where will you go? Well, I did have a place to go. I went to the atheists. And we had discussions on the uh, email list on atheism also. And I found out very few of the apologists ever read the atheists, so I started to read them. And that, coupled with Rittner, really put the kibosh on stuff. And 
as an atheist, I don't know how firm I was in atheism, but I did buy several dozen of their books and I began to study it as seriously as I was trying to study the biblical materials and the apologetic materials, the Book of Abraham materials, etc. And I got quite a few dozen real good atheist books. Yes, I read The Four Horsemen, uh, Dawkins and Harris and, and uh, those guys, Hitchens and uh, the other guy, I can't think of him. I like to think one of them was Dick uh, Stanger, but he wasn't one of the originals. And I read them too, and yeah, they're polemical, and they're actually fun to watch on YouTube. But they weren't as in-depth as some of the more philosophical atheists, and I liked them also. So, uh, I got into the atheism, and then, after a while, it dawned on me that they were as polemical as the apologists were, both the Christian and the Mormon apologists. Uh, I discovered Riscus, Thomas Riscus, and his materials against Mormonism were pretty devastating to me. But the atheists weren't all that satisfactory after a few years of reading them. They did make some fabulous points. They don't have the final word. That was my, that was my conclusion. And I basically asked myself, do I really enjoy? And I enjoy the biblical materials. I enjoy studying the languages. And I enjoy seeing the comparison contrast between uh, the Hebrew and comparing various English translations and then trying to find my own when I compare the now, the Hebrew in the Dead Sea Scrolls, of course, is an older Hebrew than in the Masoretic text. And then you have the Paleo-Hebrew way back of the Gezer calendar and the, uh, the Mesha stone, etc. There's a lot of different evolutionary Hebrew materials to work with, right? So I jump back onto the Bible and I very come, soon come to learn that there is a serious argument going on right now that I was probably more unaware of than aware of, although I had had inklings of this when I was an apologist. But now here's the gimmick, here's the catch, here's what's going on. There are extremes, and this is true with everything, right? I mean, really seriously, there are extremes <laughs> in every subject. There are pendulum swings. On the one end of the biblical pendulum swing, the extremist is the fundamentalists. Every word in the Bible is God-breathed. It's all true. It's uh, completely real, and everything happened exactly like the Bible says, because God would not let a bad record represent his works in his salvation history in the Old Testament, right? That's one extreme. That's complete nut job. That just doesn't work. There's just no way. That's phony. That's phony baloney. 
Well, the other extreme of the pendulum swing are what is a group called the minimalists. Some people call them the nihilists. <laughs> and they really almost are. True story. The minimalists say that nothing in the Bible happened. Nothing is real. Israel did not exist. That is a made-up story. That is a, uh, that is a myth. All of it is mythology. There's no history involved. Nothing real even happened there. And these are genuine biblical scholars. A lot of them are still alive. I'm thinking of uh, Peter Lemke. I believe his first name is Peter Lemke and Thomas Thompson, who incidentally had one really good research book that was very powerful, and then he fell off the cliff. That was the historicity of the patriarchal narratives. Uh, I think Thomas Thompson really did dismantle William F. Albright's historical proofs of biblical archaeology. But then after that, he just fell off the bandwagon. And to more or less now is Neil uh, Finkelstein and uh, several of these minimalists say nothing in the Bible is trustworthy. And that's the other idiotic extreme, and I, I simply don't accept that either. Uh, they swing too far to the other direction. There is a middle road that I personally find quite attractive, and that is William Dever, a very solid archaeologist. And I'll do more videos showing the details of this. Right now, I just want to kind of give you a uh, an overall broad conceptualization of how this is all starting to work. William Dever shows that yes, the Bible is written by elitists. It, and, and let's face it, it is. It was written by the those who knew how to read and write, for one thing. 97% of ancient Israel was illiterate, the folk out there in the countryside away from Jerusalem. Both up in the north and the northern kingdoms, Asher and all those areas. In the middle kingdoms where the Manasseh Ephraim group was and Judah. And then down in the southern kingdom where you have Simon. And then over on the east of the, uh, of the sea, the Dead Sea is Moab and all those places. Well, all of those people were illiterate. The Bible probably wasn't read by them in the first place, the writings and all that. So it was basically for those, the priesthood in the centralized state-controlled area of the city of Jerusalem. Uh, most of the population probably did not even ever see Jerusalem. It was too far. They lived basically subsistence living. <laughs> they didn't have, they weren't filthy rich. Although in the hill countries of uh, Ephraim, that was pretty good. That was a pretty good area because of the rivers, the wadis, the rivers coming off of the River Jordan. I can't, Yare, and I can't remember the name of the other one. Anyway, those river valleys 
gave them irrigation so they could grow crops and have animals and so on and so forth. But the far north and the desert stuff and the south into the Negev and the Sinai area uh, going down all the way toward Egypt, man, that was just dry, hot, dead desert, sand, rock. That would have sucked to live there. I would have much rather been up there in Manasseh and Ephraim territory, just north, northwest of the uh, Dead Sea. And then you have the coastal, I think the coast was like 50 miles away from Jerusalem, something like that. Ashkelon's been excavated, Ashdod, and all, that's where the Philistines and the sea people came from. What I'm getting at is this. Dever acknowledges, he says, look, the national epic that was created, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, a lot of the information in Joshua Judges where Israel came into the land of Canaan from the south through Jericho. That has been argued now very powerfully in the Biblical Archaeology Review with several articles there and in the Bible Review where really truly realistically uh, Israel probably did come into Canaan from the east in the Transjordan area. Basically, in the period of the very end of the Bronze Age, uh, 1300 to 1200, right? At the end of the Bronze Age, and the beginning of Iron One and Iron Two, uh, say 1200 to, to 1000 for Iron One, roughly, and then from Iron Two, 1000 to the end of the monarchy when Babylon destroyed him, 600 BC. All of this area here in the Iron, end of the Bronze Iron Age, is a genuine historical core. Uh, I think Dever makes his case with that. I truly do. I know there are arguments that uh, they're, they're working out more of the details rather than the actual argument itself, unless, of course, you accept the minimalist school, which I just can't. Uh, I mean, you have to read them, and they, they make a lot of noise, but uh, now the, the actual biblical scholars who have been studying this stuff their whole lives... Uh, the Copenhagen School of the Minimalists just doesn't cut it. There is a historical core, but it's not the historical Israel that any of the Christian churches understand, including the Mormon. The Mormon version of Israel comes from Joseph Smith and his putative revelations. Uh, the actual Israel that is, is used in conjunction with the biblical text and the material remains have been discovered does not correlate with the way Mormons understand Israel at all. That is a theolog theologized myth or it's a mythologized theology, whatever. Dever wants to separate the theology from the archaeology. And honestly, I think that's the only way you can do this 
legitimately and get to a historic core of Israel. In the biblical view, there is a core. It's a real Israel. It's just not what the religions, the churches, understand it to be. But it is real. That gives us the basis. And then you have the prophetic writings in the Old Testament, the Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, so on and so forth. The archaeological discoveries now of the Lachish letters, the Lachish letters in Jeremiah's day, just as Babylon was destroying Lachish, Lachish is, what, 30, 35 miles southwest of Jerusalem. It was definitely a major stronghold. Uh, that shows a historic core because we now have outside information of the way the Bible presented the problem. And even with the biblical writer's bias, with their prejudice, with their they weren't thinking of history as we think of it. No, not, not at all. But they did record what was happening in so many respects, even though they integrated their own theological understanding and view, that doesn't mean there was no Israel. What it means is they had a bias as well. Well, we know that. Everything they write is not God-breathed. They have an agenda. Devers archaeology is able to show us the historical aspect coupled with the archaeological materials in so many ways and not denigrating the religious or the theological aspect that is based on ideology and ideas, but Dever has shown through the cult of Israel, he uses the word cult in its proper sense as practice. Religion is the daily practice of the daily people. That is where Dever's archaeology really shines. In other words, ironically and most interestingly, what we read in the Bible is from the male elites and literate people. Whatever it is that they are railing against, whatever it is they are arguing about, denigrating and condemning, is what they didn't like, which is what all of the rest of the people throughout all of the rest of Israel, 95% of the population, that is what they were practicing religious-wise. So everything condemned in the Bible, this is kind of called reading against the grain, reading between the lines. Everything 
that they condemn is discovered in the archaeology, believe it or not. True story. The high places, the Asherah, the trees, the sacred groves, the cakes that they baked to the Queen of Heaven, all of that that they condemned was the practice of the folk in Israel. And it was the worship of the Mother Goddess that was going on. Very, very interesting how this works. So, the actual cult, the religious practice, the religion of Israel has nothing to do with what any of the Christian churches say Israel is all about, and therefore, this is a seriously problematic view of Joseph Smith's idea of restoring ancient Israel based on what we know right now. See, Bayesian inference here, using the Bayesian theorem, we base our beliefs on what we know with a limiting factor of our own fallibility, of course, but we're justified based on what we know at the moment of either believing or disbelieving something. Right now, we're justified in saying that Joseph Smith's restoration of ancient Israel is truly, seriously not matching. There are serious issues. And I'm going to make more videos showing the details of the Israel that is the genuine historical core in the Hebrew Bible and archaeology and compare it with the Israel Joseph Smith has. The problem with Joseph Smith's view is he included, he connected theology with history. And that muddies up the actual picture. That's the problem. It's not the solution. From Joseph Smith's point of view, it is the solution because he claimed he was receiving it through revelation, right? That still doesn't match. If it was genuine revelation, it should at least somewhat match what we are discovering now. We've been at this now for 200 years and we have pretty good ideas. No, we don't know it all. Yes, biblical scholarship changes its mind, but that's based on evidence and careful investigation across disciplines, socioeconomic, political, geographical, military, religious, theological, archaeological, textual, linguistic, etc. We have a pretty good idea. What we're going to change now is the details. At this point, we can say whatever it was or has been said about the patriarchal materials in the Bible is truly not historical. 
it's not based on actual history like this core Israel that has been discovered is based on actual history. That's what we're justified in concluding at this point. This can change if and when further discoveries are made. But it has to be based upon information, evidence. It has to be based on a genuine reality that we can explore, investigate, and know about. That's what it has to be changed on. Not changed on a whim, like say someone's spectacular revelation. That doesn't work that way. That doesn't work very well. It's got to be based on material reality because that is where we live. That is the basis of knowing the religious practices and in many cases we can correctly show the religious beliefs even without a text. A text definitely helps. There's no question about that. We're not saying don't use texts. We're saying integrate texts with the archaeology. And that's what's been happening. At this point, it's not looking good for Joseph Smith and Mormonism. And I'll do detailed videos on that as I can. So sorry about how the lighting is changing. Depends where the sun is, I suppose. Anyway, that's essentially what I wanted to tell you of where I'm at right now in my investigation. I am an agnostic seeker, and I don't apologize for that, nor do I feel bad about that. It's a good thing to live, learn how to live with uncertainty because that is the ground reality, isn't it? I mean, when you really stop and think about it, that's where the fundamental truth is, is in our fallible uncertainty. So, that's my Backyard Professor video on Mormonism for now. While I'm on the road, the Backyard Professor on the road. So, thanks for watching. Be good, do well, have fun, sleep good, make lots of friends, be nice, be neighborly, we need one another. It's time to be realistic and true to our overall humanity with all people. Boy, that's a pretty good ending, right? Anyway, thanks for watching, you guys. I will see you guys in the next Backyard Professor videos on Mormonism.